Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dav, how's it going? It's going well, Ty. How are you on this beautiful day? I'm doing all right. Excited because it's the, my last week of classes. Woo, woo. Oh, that <laughs> is very exciting. I'm sure as a professor, but I guess the real work is about to start with all the grading. The grading, yeah. Yeah, next couple of weeks will be a lot of intense grading, but, you know, can't be mad about having three-month vacation. <laughs> I know, right? Do you have anything fun planned? Uh, not really. Actually, just doing some work, minor work, like writing papers. Um, but other than that, kind of just taking it easy, just staying okay. productive on the writing end. That's um, good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing too much going on here. Just the same old, same old. Trying to get this work done. Yep. Yep. I hear that. All right. So, uh, we got some uh, oh Lord, news of the week. I'm assuming we do. Yes, we do. Of course, we do. <laughs> these it. people just don't don't give it a break. So I gotta, I gotta <laughs> report. All right, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening oh Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say. That's what we got. Okay, so this is the time of year that we start seeing all of these beautiful prom dresses and guys in tux. And recently, we've also started to see these extravagant prom prosals. Have you ever heard of those? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where they, you know, find creative ways to propose going to the prom with someone. Well, a Riverview High School student in Florida is under fire because... Florida all the time. It's always Florida. (laughs) Have you seen that Bugs Bunny gif where he, like, cuts Florida off of the United States? (laughs) No. Well, yeah, you got to see that. I feel like Florida and Texas always got the stories. Okay. Always got the stories. Well, the student proposed to his prom date with a poster that said, if I was black, I'd be picking cotton, but I'm white, so I'm picking you for prom. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I cannot believe that. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. I Jesus. just also found out, like, as a follow up, that I think he was banned for prom from prom and graduation following. Uh, it, it, it went viral. The story went viral. So, you know. Mm. <laughs> my like come on you already know that this is a racist comment because of the way you're starting it off you know because i don't pick cotton oh my god oh, <laughs> Florida. Florida. first of all black people don't pick cotton anymore so just stop yeah, it wasn't even correct you know, hopefully, hopefully she thing. said no hopefully do we even know what the response was she probably said yes. I don't know the <laughs> response, but she That's probably said yes. That's what we need to know. Yeah, no and a slap to the face. Yes. So speaking of memory lane, 10 years ago, I graduated from college. I'll be celebrating my 10-year reunion this year. Mm-hmm. And that, yes, that year, my anthem, my soundtrack was Kanye West's graduation. Like literally, I named my Facebook albums after song titles and lyrics in that Mm. album. Mm. Well, mm, I think I might have to cancel Kanye West because in the latest Old Lord news, not only did he profess his love and support for Trump, but he also professed his love and his support or agreement with Candace Owen, who essentially said that there are two types of Black people, those with the victim mentality and those with the victor mentality. The victim mentality Blacks are those who, you know, bring up things like uh, 400 years of slavery and oppression and 
she said, talks about those things as if you went through them. Those were your grandparents, not you. And they didn't even, you know, cause as much ruckus about it as you did. In regard to those statements, Kanye, Kanye West then said, I love the way Candace Owen thinks. And then he goes on to say, we have freedom of speech, but not freedom of thought. Constantly bringing up the past keeps you stuck there. There was a time when slavery was the trend. And apparently that time is still upon us. But now it's a mentality. Self-victimiza- self-victimization is a disease. And then he puts on the MAGA hat. And, you know, start talking about he loved Trump. Ciao. Oh, Kanye, Kanye, Kanye. (laughs) This man has really, it's really, it really, you know what? I think why this upsets a lot of people, because like you, you know, I was a big Kanye fan when he first came out, college dropout, graduation, et cetera. And the things he used to do, he was just so for the people. I mean, he is the guy that said, George Bush don't like black folk. (laughs) <laughs> like this is Kanye this is the Kanye that when Taylor Swift won ran up on stage and said no Beyonce deserves this award we all rooted for him mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. out of nowhere I mean I think it started with getting involved with them Kardashians I think that was the first step and now yeah. people say he in the second place and he coming out with a make America great again hat on talking about he loves Trump and loves these conser- love these conservative thinkers I mean, it's a very, very complete 180 from what he used to be to what he is now. And it doesn't add up. It it doesn't add up. It was funny because Snoop Dogg actually tweeted out like a a gif or a meme that I had been seeing. I was like, uh, the difference or who you like Kanye West and Jay-Z are examples of the importance of who you marry. Look at the evolution of Jay-Z and look at the evolution of Kanye West. And, you know, I'm not going to put everything on Kim Kardashian, although, you know, I'm not a fan. I don't keep up with the Kardashians. (laughs) But, you know, it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, sometimes watching be like, "Mm -mm, don't do that, babe. I don't don't think so. Yeah, Kanye was mad about that, which he should be. I mean, that's his wife. Somebody's taking a shot at his wife. I get it. (laughs) But I think, you know, people like Snoop are saying what a lot of people are already thinking. Um, And it's very weird. He said, Kanye did say Beyonce called him up and said that he didn't agree with the statement. Uh, But we don't, you know, Mm. which which makes sense. She doesn't want to, you know, separate herself from that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I would also say Chance the Rapper also kind of got himself entangled up in (laughs) I saw, I saw it. He got himself in trouble when he came to Kanye's defense. And then... And then, Trump, yeah. Trump used that and they put him in a tweet uh-huh. taking chance. <laughs> yeah. So it was also, I think what Chance tried to explain is that his comments about Kanye and his tweet that, you know, black people don't have to be Democrats, which is true. It just wasn't the right time to say that as you were coming to the defense of Kanye West, who's talking about how much he loves freaking Trump. And yeah, I'm going to read the treat, uh, tweet from Trump. Mm-hmm. It says Kanye West has performed a great service to the black community. Big things are happening and eyes are being opened for the first time in decades. Legacy stuff. Thank you to Chance and Dr. Darrell Darrell Scott. They really get it. Lowest black and Hispanic unemployment rate in history. (laughs) I can't. I can't. I can't. And that's that's when Chance tried to, you know, back oh, he like, uh-uh, real don't quick. put me in that. <laughs> Do not put me in that. So I will also I appreciate how much uh music artists have just been putting their voices out there. I like the tweets from uh I like the tweets from John Legend and also that he emailed Kanye like or text Kanye like, don't do this, reconsider. Mm-hmm. And I really love a quote from Jamel, uh, Janelle Monet. She said, uh, someone asked her about Kanye West's tweets and his 
support of conservative thinkers. And she said, I don't agree with that if it's true and he's supporting anybody who thinks that. I don't agree with him at all. I believe in free thinking. I don't believe in free thinking if it's rooted in or at the expense of the oppressed. If your free thinking is fueled by oppressors to continue to oppress black people or minorities, I think it's BS. So shout out Mm -hmm. to her because that's what I was thinking. Like, you know, people are trying to get wrapped up in freedom of speech and freedom of thought. But boo, if your freedom of speech or your freedom of thought is at the expense of someone else, you're not really free. And if you are elevating the voices and the messages of those who are preaching hate, then mm-mm, you canceled. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a big separation between having this lack of freedom of thought um, and he's trying to go against the grain. But man, there's a reason why a lot of people do not like Trump. You know, it's just you can be conservative. You can be a Republican. That is fine. But don't try to, you know, say that everybody's thinking one way because Trump is in office and now you want to jump on the bandwagon and and use this. And I think, you know, there was a little rap between going back and forth between him and T.I. They did a little track together where it was pretty much dialogue. T.I. was giving his perspective as far as why he thinks Kanye is you know, going a little offline, a little off the rails here. And Kanye was responding, trying to talk about his point, which is, you know, freedom of thought doesn't want to go, you know, the same way, wants to spread love. Um, but I think, you know, it's hurt. It's hurting them, you know. Um, I don't know if this is the right step because as a Kanye fan, I said to myself that I will not be putting money into this man's pocket until he gets his act together. So I know he got this new album coming out and I will not be purchasing it. <laughs> I just can't. I just wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, I don't either. And it's funny because I always listen to rap, of course, but I never really bought rap. Kanye West was the first rapper whose CDs, because, you know, this is dating <laughs> us since no one buys CDs anymore. But like literally physically going to the record store, the music store and buying his CDs. He was the first rapper I ever did mm-hmm. that for. And I will not do that yeah. again. You know, like you said, if he want to get his act together, I don't know, but he needs to do something. But I'm not. I'm speaking with my mm-hmm, money. Mm-hmm. And then, so there's a big response to it. But, you know, I think this can lead us into our conversation of today, uh, because probably like many of you, uh, you know, we are not trying to keep Trump in office for another four years. We're not trying to keep his party in power for another four couple of years. And so we do have midterm elections coming up this fall in 2018. Um, So we thought it'd be important to start the discussion about voting and why it's important and kind of some of the trends dealing with race, criminal justice, etc. And this is a really important time for us to discuss this to kind of give you, uh, you know, preface to the conversation that we'll be having more often when it gets closer to that time period. Yes, absolutely. So I'm ready to get started. Let's get started this conversation hopefully y'all enjoy it um and then we'll catch up with y'all after the the interview now i'm not going to be long i'm going to be very brief i'm not here to make a speech i'm here to make a plea and i'm here to urge you to do something that i think you will do and something that i think you want to do each of us has a moral responsibility if we are of voting age and if we are registered to participate in that decision. I come here to urge every person under the sound of my voice to go to the polls on the 3rd of November and vote your convictions. Now I know you are intelligent people And I don't need to tell you who you should vote for. I don't have any fear about that. You know who to vote for. I'm just asking you to vote. And so all men of goodwill will go to the polls on November the 3rd. And I hope we will have a great day in our nation so that when we wake up on the 4th of November, we will know that America has made the right decision. Because of campaigns like this, the Voting Rights Act was passed. Political and economic and social barriers came down. And the change these men and women wrought is visible here today in the presence of African Americans who run boardrooms, who sit on the bench, who serve in elected office from small towns to big cities, 
from the Congressional Black Caucus all the way to the Oval Office. Because of what they did. The doors of opportunity swung open, not just for black folks, but for every American. Women marched through those doors. Latinos marched through those doors. Asian Americans, gay Americans, Americans with disabilities, they all came through those doors. Their endeavors gave the entire South the chance to rise again not by reasserting the past, but by transcending the past. What a glorious thing, Dr. King might say. And what a solemn debt we owe. With the upcoming midterm elections, voting and voting rights have once again become hot topics of discussion. Today, we interview Dr. Ariel White, an assistant professor of political science at MIT, who studies voting and voting rights, race, and the criminal justice system. Specifically, we discuss common misconceptions about voting, the factors that shape an individual's decision to vote, and the relationship between the increasing diversity in America and electoral politics. Um, We generally start these interviews, Professor White, um, by asking interviewees to tell us a little bit more about themselves. And we are particularly interested in understanding how and why you took an interest in studying voting. Mm. Yeah. um, Well, I guess I've always been interested in voting. Uh, I was, you know, out in high school registering my classmates to vote when we were eligible. Um, And I don't know if either of you grew up in New York State, but do you remember these voting machines? I guess a lot of places used to have them where you would pull the curtain behind you and then you would actually tick little levers to vote. Mm-hmm. And so I have very fond memories of my parents, like picking me up in the voting booth and having me tick the levers. Um, and so this is something that, that I've always been kind of into. But then when I became a political scientist and when I was in grad school looking for things to study, I, I mean, I think I'm drawn to voting because it is one of the key ways that a lot of people actually get to tell government what they want, right? Some people will do more intense things. Some people will call their legislators or will get involved in community organizations or will go to protests or any number of other things. But for a lot of people, election day is the main time that they kind of make their voice heard to policymakers. And so this, I think, because it is so widespread and because it is something that that so many people do, it, it I'm really interested in it. And I'm especially interested in how the decision to vote can be shaped by people's own experiences with government in the past. So experiences like incarceration or uh, changes in policies in their community, how those kinds of experiences can make them more or less willing to actually turn out when Election Day comes around. Mm -hmm. So just kind of generally speaking, when it comes to voting, and I'm pretty sure people have many opinions about it. So from your experience and your expertise, what are some of the more common misconceptions, if any, that people may or you may hear about voting um, that people may say? Mm, That's a good question. Um, I have I guess I guess I'll say two of them. Uh, One is is that voting is some sort of like totally individual act that people do on their own. Like they're just a person who's going to vote or a person who's not going to vote. When I think there's growing evidence that there's a big social component, right, that friends and family voting matter for whether you vote, that social pressure, people coming to your door, people coming to try and mobilize you, can make it more likely that you'll vote. Um, and that that big kind of social piece also, I think, plays into my second misconception, which is that I think sometimes we expect that any reform that seems like it should increase voter turnout and make it easier for people to vote will, in fact, mean that more people vote. And we've had some surprising findings over the last couple of decades that changes that we thought would definitely mean more voting haven't necessarily translated into that. So things like um, the motor voter law back in the 90s, where that's the kind of nickname for it. But the idea was that people would be able to register um, at the DMV or at other certain public services office offices. And um, we didn't necessarily see the big uptick in voting from that that we might have expected. Uh, and more recently, we've seen things like early voting that seem like, yeah, that's an obvious thing to make sure that people can get there even if they they can't go vote on election day. And there's actually some evidence suggesting that not only does it not increase turnout, it may if you don't 
put some other registration changes in place as well could be associated with lower turnout, which which really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think it's interesting thinking about voting as a group um, kind of not project, but experience. Because uh, I think when we think about a lot of things that we do in society, we do do it with groups, um, you know, peer influences. I know I've seen research studies even talking about things like obesity studies and looking, saying that, you know, someone's obesity, their close network might be obese as well, right? Because you're eating the similar things or workout habits and stuff like that. Um, so I think, yeah, that's true. When you think about voting, uh, it's probably not just an individual thing. If you have your close peer group or influencers, significant others participating, you're probably more likely to participate too. And I think we'll, we'll probably talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about that in a bit. Agreed. I was about to say, when we typically think of major elections or, or even smaller elections, people often talk about individuals as groups or voting blocks. So I, I do think that is important to consider. Um, you mentioned that you study factors that may shape an individual's decision to vote, and you specifically mentioned issues related to criminal justice. Why is it important to study race and criminal justice when it comes to voting behaviors and trends? Mm, I, yeah, I don't even know where to start. Um, but I think, I think there's a couple of big things to highlight here. There's questions of of access, just basic questions of whether people are allowed and able to cast a ballot, but also whether people have the ability to cast a meaningful vote. Um, And so I guess I'll start by noting things like felon disenfranchisement laws, right? The criminal legal system is one of the main ways that people become ineligible to vote because in a number of states, people who have convictions, um, sometimes including people who are still on parole or who are on probation, other times just people who are behind bars, but people who have been convicted of felonies are often prevented from voting. And given the huge racial disproportion in who is exposed to that system, that means that 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 disenfranchisement gets disproportionately borne by people of color and particularly African-Americans. And so that's just a huge piece of who's not legally allowed to vote. Um, But then there's also, I mean, of course, there's an enormous and super ugly history of racial disenfranchisement um, in the U.S. And so, you know, I think we need to think about both the ways that people have historically been prevented from voting, especially black potential voters, um, but also ways in which kind of less obvious things come into play when you're thinking about whether people are able to vote, whether they face barriers to voting, but also whether their vote is actually going to be useful to them. Um, And so over the the decades of the Voting Rights Act, for example, we saw ideas emerge about not just do you have a poll tax, not just do you have some sort of literacy test, but also are you districting in such a way that minority communities are not meaningfully able to elect somebody that actually cares about them and their vote? You know, are, are people being split across many districts, for example, such that they don't represent a sizable portion of the electorate in any one of them. And so they they never really have a chance to elect a candidate who's ever going to listen to them. Stuff like that, I think, plays in as well. That's interesting because um, recently the governor of New York had declared, I think just a couple of days ago, that he's going to do an executive order, you know, to allow parolees with felonies to vote. Um, so I kind of, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? You know, a part of me is saying maybe he's doing this for his own voting, you know, uh, interest to, to boost up his kind of constituency in, in some instances, or could it be from the kindness of his heart? Uh, what, just kind of what are your thoughts on that? Mm, yeah, Um Let me first take off my researcher hat here and say just personally, morally, as an American, I think this is the right thing to do. Um, Mm. I think it's a good signal, right? I think it tells people you are you're still a part of our community. You're a part of our democracy. You have the rights of a citizen. I think that's really powerful and important. Um, Coming to what I think will actually happen and whether it has partisan implications, I think people often overstate the the partisan nature of changes like this. Um, I did. I just said that. Um, for sure, exposure to felon disenfranchisement is super racially disproportionate. Um, black citizens are way more likely to be disenfranchised through laws like this than are white citizens, for example. But um, it's still the case, given the demographics of the U.S., that a whole lot of people who are disenfranchised by these laws are white. Um, in most places, it's still the majority. And so if you think about who's getting re-enfranchised, it's not totally clear to me that that 
kind of maps on to some particular kind of partisan voting outcome. Um, And there's some work by um, Tracy Birch at Northwestern trying to think through what this meant, for example, for the the 2000 presidential election in Florida, which has a lot of felon disenfranchisement. And she reaches a conclusion that this this is not as as clear a partisan story as some people might think it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's really interesting. And I guess I hadn't thought about it like that. I think so often I think about criminal justice and the impact uh, or dis- its disproportionate impact on the black community. So when I think about, you know, reenfranchisement, I'm, I think I usually think about it from that perspective, but I, I had not thought about the ways in which it might not be related, like you said, to uh, partisanship. And so I'm definitely going to look that up and we'll include that resource um, on this episode um, page. Um, in your last response, you also mentioned the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was changed in 2013 with the Shelby County v. Holder decision. I was mm-hmm. wondering if you could tell us a little bit more, you know, about those changes to the Voting Rights Act, uh, Voting Rights Act, and how they may Im- impact voting now. Yeah. Um, so. Basically, exactly as you said, the the Shelby v. Holder case was about a particular part of the Voting Rights Act. It was about section, well, section four and section five. And section four laid out what they called a coverage formula for section five. It said, places that have a particularly egregious history of voter discrimination are going to receive extra scrutiny. So um, big swaths of the South, but not only the South, were covered under this because they had previously had things like poll taxes in place, because they had had incredibly, incredibly low voter registration rates among black residents uh, before the passage of this law. Um, And these places, because because of this history, were then covered by what Section 5 called preclearance, which meant that whenever they wanted to make a change to their electoral institutions, anything about the way they ran elections, um, like their districts, like, um, you know, how much early voting they had, anything like that. It had to be run by the Department of Justice first. Um, So there was this level of scrutiny of everything they did because of their history. And basically, the, the majority in the court held in 2013 that this history was no longer good enough, that they didn't think that there was some ongoing um, de- de- like ongoing demonstration of racial disparity and racial discrimination in these places that would justify them getting this extra level of scrutiny. And so they ended up throwing out Section 4, which meant that in practice, nobody's under preclearance anymore. So these places can now change their election practices without having to run it by the Department of Justice. Um, that doesn't mean that other parts of the VRA aren't in place. So if people end up having um, cases of discrimination that fall under other parts of the law, they can bring those cases in federal court um, under, for example, Section 2. But they no longer have that, that first check of just stopping people from doing obviously discriminatory things that we might have had in the past. And so in practice, we've seen things like um, voter ID laws that previously might have been kind of held up um, or might have maybe been watered down in some places. We saw places start to pass laws that we might not have seen in the past, I think. Mm, okay. What would be, I guess when we're talking maybe about um, like voting trends uh, and, and race and behavior, what are some of the general you know, trends when it comes to race are there any uh, differences between, you know, black voters, Latino voters, white voters, et cetera? Um, and then maybe what are some of the factors that contribute to these these differences, if there are any? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, the electorate as a whole is getting less white, like the country. Um, but it's not kind of a, an immediate one to one thing. Um, black turnout is relatively high. Um, we especially see black women doing a lot of turning out in elections in ways that I think people who don't follow this might, I guess, might be surprised by, given that we see black turnout being high, even among people who have a lot of barriers to voting, even among people who are relatively low income, for example, who, as members of other groups, might not vote that much. Um, Meanwhile, Latino voter turnout is still relatively low compared to other groups. Um, 
that varies a little bit place to place. Um, but this means that, you know, as the Latino population of the country grows, I think people are kind of expecting that demography is going to be like destiny when it comes to elections. And I think there's still a lot of room to see that that turnout kind of increase and to see mobilization work to get people to the polls. It's not just that kind of changes in the population are automatically reflected in in who votes, because that's not been the case. Um, and, and thinking about the increasing diversity of the electorate, um, I read a 2014 report from the National Republican Committee um, that suggested that the changing demographics of the electorate would make it quote, increasingly difficult for Republicans to win another presidential election in the near future if their platform did not start speaking, I guess, to the interests and the needs of, you know, diverse populations. You know, I know this is a little bit outside of your wheelhouse, but I just wanted to get your perspective on that statement, considering um, trends or insights that you might have from your field on, um on voting, on voting behavior, um, and just in general, your perspective on how and whether um, parties might be able to appeal to or increase uh, voter, you know, turnout or participation related to their particular platform or party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of pieces to this this question facing the Republican Party, and certainly it's one that they saw before 2014, I feel like every couple of years they come out with a study like this being like, what's going to happen? And I mean, there's, there's the, the voter turnout piece, there's who comes to the polls. And then there's the choice piece of, you know, whether people are going to support a given party or not. And I mean, as I just started to hint at a minute ago, um, changes in the population aren't necessarily instantly reflected in the electorate. And we see changes, we see variation in that across types of elections, across geography, across um, just kind of how well people get mobilized. So I think it's not, it's not automatic that um, demographic shifts are going to translate into Republicans never being able to win elections, especially if they're able to you know, continue to turn out a white base. Um, but then there's also the question of whether the Republican Party is going to just kind of continue to not appeal to members of non-white groups. Um, so that choice piece. And that, I mean, I can't speak to what their strategy is. I certainly don't think the last presidential election was um, an attempt to reach out to other groups. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to say what what we'll see happening over the next couple of years. Okay, nice. I, I kind of want to switch gears just a little bit and talk a little bit more specifically about your own research and what you study. Um, and you know, I find it. And then I, we usually don't ask, you know, our guests to come on and speak all the way about their kind of research methodology uh, because it usually isn't the goal of this. But I find that your methodologies and, and what you found are, are quite very interesting um, and compelling in a lot of ways. So I guess maybe you can share with us um, some of your projects, maybe dealing with, you know, uh, immigration enforcement and voter turnouts. And then also, uh, you know, the way media perceptions may play a role in voting, et cetera, uh, I think it'd be pretty cool for our listeners to hear what you do and, and some of the things you found. Thanks. Yeah. Um, hey, why don't I start with the, the Secure Communities paper? So I, I had this question that people talk about in the literature about whether, basically whether being exposed to some sort of threat can sometimes mobilize a community, can, can bring people together to kind of make sure that they participate and try and combat something that they're worried about policy-wise. Um, and one thing that a lot of surveys of Latino voters suggest is that a lot of people are concerned about immigration, even if they themselves are not, um, are citizens and are not, you know, ever going to be at risk of deportation, they may still report that members in their family, for example, um, are not citizens, are people who could potentially be deported under various immigration regimes, members of their community, neighbors, they might worry about their status. And so I wanted to see whether changes in immigration policy could sometimes drive people to turn out to vote more, could kind of mobilize people. Um, and so I, what, what I ended up looking at was one shift in um, what was called the Secure Communities Program, which was this program that was rolled out in the around 2010 and afterwards, um, looking at 
it was basically an information sharing program. So um, it meant that the federal government was able to access information about um, local jails and possibly pick people up who they would otherwise not have found and thought to deport. And so there was this real risk that as it got rolled out in given places, you could see people getting deported who would otherwise not have been subject to that. And so, um, you know, activists started raising the alarm about this. But the thing that, that was kind of useful for a design here was that some places got this program rolled out before the 2010 election and other places didn't get the program until afterwards. Um, and for at least some places, it was arguably not because of the local characteristics, not because the local um, officials wanted it, but just because it happened to fall either before or after the election. Um, and so for these places, I think there's a useful comparison where you've got this set of places. Some of them have seen this program rolled out before the election. They've seen you know, activists getting concerned about it. There's room for people to start mobilizing and trying to turn people out. And in other places, that will happen later. It hasn't happened yet. Um, and so this lets me get at this comparison between places that have this program by, the, you know, by election day to see whether they see greater Latino voter mobilization um, in the wake of the implementation of this program, of this kind of threat to community members. Um, and I do find this several percentage point increase in voting in places that get this program right before the 2010 election, where there's this kind of increased potential for people to be deported uh, under this program. So that's one one sort of project where I, I used um, administrative data, so information about how programs get rolled out and also information about uh, voting from public records to try and get at this this big story about how experiences with policy can shape whether or not people choose to participate. Um, well, what I was about to, um, what I was thinking is I want to echo Ty's comments about your work in general. Um, we saw quite a few of your different projects and I appreciated the methodological uh, variety um, that you used in your work. And I truly appreciate like the innovative approaches that you take toward being able to make more causal claims about um, voting or about the role of the media um, in information and voting. I was wondering if you could uh, maybe share um, information about maybe current or future projects you have um, related to voting and voting behavior. For sure. Um, actually, maybe I'll give just a little bit more background, if it's all right, on a project that I worked on before and kind of where I'm headed with it. Um, yeah, so one project that I've worked on in the past was trying to get at um, how people's experiences of incarceration can shape whether they vote in the future. Um, and so for this, I collected um, a lot of court records to try and use this, this one big county court system to see how experiences of jail, for example, can shape whether or not people vote in the next election. Um, and I use this design using kind of some people get sent to jail almost at random because of getting sent to a judge that tends to send a lot of people to jail compared to getting sent to a judge that doesn't do that as often. Um, but after I looked at that, after I found, for example, that people do seem less likely to vote after they get sent to jail, um, and particularly um, black voters seem like they drop off after having been to jail. Uh, and I think this is a story kind of about well, I think there's a story here about policing and who gets pulled into the system and kind of whether some communities get disproportionately focused on by police and prosecutors. Um, but after I saw that, I wanted to see whether we could see basically household level effects of incarceration. So there's been a lot of work done on how incarcer incarceration is experienced by an entire family, right? It's not just the person who ends up behind bars, but there are all sorts of implications for the other people in their life around, you know, job loss and housing insecurity and emotional effects and health effects and things like this. And so I wanted to see whether we also saw voting effects. And so one thing I've been looking at recently is um, looking at people who see somebody in their life arrested, convicted, actually sent to jail, um, even for misdemeanor crimes, and whether it looks like these people um, become less likely to vote or not. So that's been something that's been on my plate lately. So when we talk about um, 
potential maybe issues with voting or, you know, barriers. Do you see, and I, and I know over the past few years, there's been conversation and dialogue about maybe some states increase push to make voting more difficult. Um, so how do you, what is your interpretation of that? You know, as far as it being a societal issue, is it something that people should be paying attention to? Is it something we should be worried about? Um, and if this is occurring, are there steps that people can take to maybe stop it from happening? Mm, yes. Um, I like the last part of that question the best, but let me start with the first part of it. Um, yes, I do worry about barriers to voting. Um, I worry about, well, let me talk about voter ID laws as a case, because this is something I've thought a fair amount about, um, which these are, for people who might not be familiar with them, they're laws that require that people show some sort of ID um, when they go to vote. And the type of ID that's required depends on the state. So some places require certain types of photo ID, certain types of government-issued photo ID. Other places have different rules. Um, and often people propose these as laws that are intended to solve some sort of problem around voter fraud, like people pretending to be someone that they're not or pretending to be eligible to vote when they're not. Um, and I should note that there's really essentially no evidence that that's a widespread problem or that that's happening on any scale that would merit legal changes to, to try and combat it. Um, but while we're solving this problem that doesn't doesn't exist as far as we can tell, um, I do worry about us disproportionately burdening voters and disproportionately burdening some types of voters in particular. Um, we know that the costs of complying with these laws um, disproportionately fall on uh, people of color, disproportionately fall on the very old and the very young, um, disproportionately fall on low-income people. Um, we know this because we can see who is least likely to have the types of ID that are required by these laws. Um, if you think about laws that require something like a, a driver's license or other state-issued ID, certainly not everybody has a driver's license. And so there's a real cost associated with figuring out how to go to a government office that can give you an ID, even if you don't have to pay for that ID. There are real costs there. Um, I don't think we have clear evidence that these laws actually reduce turnout among people who are facing these burdens. And there are any number of reasons that we might not have seen that. Um, it's, it's a hard question to answer because, you know, there are a lot of other things that affect turnout. We only have so many observations, right, because only so many states introduce these laws. And the types of states that introduce voter ID laws are kind of different from the states that don't. And so it's hard to compare them and just look at whether it seems like turnout is different in these places. Um, so, and it's also, of course, possible that some people are um, voting despite the barriers, right? People are pushing through and getting the ID they need and they're turning out to vote uh, regardless. But even if they aren't affecting turnout, I still think there's a real problem with making it difficult for people to vote for no reason. Um, and so I think this is something we should keep an eye on. Um, so let's see, what can people do? Well, I mean, for one thing, I think we're seeing people start to talk about voter ID laws as a real burden um, in ways that we hadn't before. When they first started being proposed, they, they had really widespread support among almost all sectors of the voting public, across party, across race, across age. And I think that's starting to shift as people think through the implications of these laws um, and think through the kind of disproportionate way in which they might be implemented. Um, I've done some work suggesting that there's some bias in who's able to get information about these laws. Uh, there's other work suggesting that people of color are especially likely to be asked for ID, even if they don't necessarily have to show it in the place where they're being asked. Um, so I think people have maybe a growing awareness of the concerns posed by laws like this that make it more difficult for people to vote. Um, and I think some people are starting to exert pressure on their legislators, right? That's, I think the next step is, you know, call the state house and, and say you don't support bills like this. I agree. We have to get out there and make our voices heard. And in thinking about uh, your study where you uh, use different email addresses for, uh, like Latino sounding names and other sounding names and thinking about the response or lack of response that some people got. It just means that we have to keep pushing forward and, and keep being persistent to make sure our voices are heard. 
Um, this conversation has been like really interesting and informative. Um, I appreciate or we appreciate all your insights. We were kind of wondering in closing if there was anything else you'd like to say or anything that you think we missed in terms of discussing participation, turnout, the role of the criminal justice system and or uh, immigration laws and policies in shaping um, voter turnout. Oh, I mean, I think your questions were really well thought out here. Um, no, actually. Well, then that means we did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> we want to say thank you, Ariel, for taking up um, speak with us. Really appreciate it. Um, hopefully all of our listeners, you've gained something from this conversation about voting, especially, you know, with your local elections, but also we have 2018 midterm elections coming up soon as well. And so it's just good to be well-informed about this topic and understand um, a lot of, as much as you can about it. Um, is there any place that people can reach you, Ariel, as far as maybe social media handles or a website? Oh, yes. Um, you can see me on Twitter at Ariel R. White. And um, thanks for having me. This was my pleasure. No, thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay, Des, so what you, what you think about our voting conversation with Dr. White? Um... Like I said at the end of the interview, it was interesting and informative. I appreciated her discussion of the Voting Rights Act as well as the discussion of the changes that happened in Shelby v. Holder. Um, for me, I feel like after that decision was made, especially in thinking about the last election, there was a lot of fear about what Southern states may do to try to disenfranchise people that have the right to vote and should be able to participate. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember um, the North Carolina legislation that critics said targeted African-Americans and Latinos with precision in terms of trying to find ways to decrease their participation in the election. You know, I was so happy that the law, you know, was struck down. Um, but at the same time, like battles are raging in lots of states, especially as we move toward midterm elections and, and probably another very controversial national presidential election in which certain parties, uh, i.e. the Republican Party, <laughs> is attempting to win elections, not by being responsive to the electorate and being responsive to the needs and demands of voters, but trying to win by changing the rules of the game. And so we have to be smarter in terms of how we how we try to get out the vote, how we place demands on our elected officials and just making sure that we are putting the pressure on them to act, act in a manner that is fair towards everyone. And I think it also speaks to the importance of our elections because baby our elected officials often appoint the judges who will either uphold these discriminatory laws mm -hmm. or strike them down yeah. our elections matter I, I don't know how many ways to say it or how many times i'll say it but i'm gonna keep on i mean voting is important so important uh, not too long ago, my students in my race, crime and punishment class, we were looking at some of, you know, things done with race and uh, the history of race in our country. And, you know, what struck me the most, because I was reading this book was them for the first time called Race, Crime and the Law, was just what would happen to black folks that went to vote. They would lo literally lose their lives. They would literally be lynched for trying to execute their right to vote. Like, this is how serious it is, you know, and I think sometimes we take that lightly. It's overlooked, maybe because a lot of the horrific incidences, especially when it do with lynching and stuff like that, largely gets overlooked in our history, history books and social study classes. So we know things happen, but we don't see the real extreme detailed ramifications of what was happening. So to vote 
back in the day in the Jim Crow era, especially when lynching was at its height, was to literally lose your life. But people still went to do to do it, even though they knew that was the case. And so, like you said, we can't stress this enough how much voting is important if we want to see changes to be active and not just to just vote for one party or another, but to be informed on what they stand for. Right. And not to just believe the hype and believe, you know, what they're trying to do. I do think it's important when she, you know, when we brought up what the governor of New York is doing, trying to, well, he is putting an executive order to allow um, felon paroles to vote. And I think, it will be about maybe around 36,000 people who can be disenfranchised in this manner uh, or re-enfranchised in this manner. Um, and so, you know, apart and I, I far, at first when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, OK, this means a good, you know, a good number of black folk are going to do it. Maybe he's doing this because he's going to get more votes um, in his way or, you know, to help out in the, in the midterms. But then when she made that point that it doesn't really necessarily mean that somebody's going to vote one way or another, that also is important too. just numerically, you know, raw numbers, more white people are locked up than black folk. It's the disproportion is when we look at our own populations. But that does mean that for the most part, more white people probably will get the benefits of this, you know, new executive order. Um, but kind of like what you said before, you know, dealing with the Republican Party, historically, the trends have always shown that when people don't come out to vote, they are likely to win. But when a lot of people come out to vote, they are less likely to win. So having more numbers definitely is on the favor on the side of uh, Democrats, which is maybe why the the governor decided to do this. Um, so you know, I think that's part of the one reason too. And I also like what she talked about was the fact that when we talk about voting and we think about voting, most of the time we do look at it as an individual act, but we're trying to figure out. What strategies can we do? Can we implement to get more people to vote? I think looking at it from a group perspective is probably the best way about doing it. When we look at other ways of doing things, such as, you know, losing weight, right? Accountability, uh, or you're talking about beating an addiction, right? Um, with like AA meetings or NA meetings, um, you know, they're doing that in a group. And it's just like being part of a group that, are similar to you in some ways, like-minded in some ways, trying to reach the same goals, but it also serves as accountability, which is why I think a lot of those kind of programs work because your people are going to watch you and see, especially with things like Weight Watchers, right? You, you have to go step on a scale every week or every couple of weeks in front of your group and they're going to look at you and, you know, this there to motivate you so you're more likely to do it because, you know, you're going to have to own up to it. And so if we begin to look at voting and more maybe you know, neighborhood group level kind of thing, or uh, just get churches. That's, I think, why it was successful, you know, pre-civil rights era, et cetera, because the church was such a a common place for black folk. And if you were going to do it, you were going to go to church and then people would ask you, did you vote or didn't you vote? And you're also able to get more people to vote, too, because you're able to help them. Kind of like we see, like I said, with these NAAA meetings or even with Weight Watchers, like, hey, hey, I'm going to the voting booth at this time. You know, you want to ride with me, you know, we can get off or we can ask the boss, can we get off at this time together since we work at the same job? So I definitely think looking at it from a more group perspective is quite beneficial. And I think we can see a lot of change that way. But, you know, everybody has to really pay attention to this midterm elections and what's going to go on with that. I agree. I appreciate it. How she shouted out black women who oh, yeah. uh, really, you know, changed the game in that um, Alabama election. I think um, in, in terms of like thinking about, you know, voting blocks and, and holding people accountable, you know, to come and vote. I feel like, you know, when I've talked to people about why they may not be excited about the prospect of voting. It is often because they feel like elected officials, whether they are Democratic or Republican, are not responsive to our needs. And I even know people who express disappointment following, you know, the Alabama upset that they wasted their vote on someone who may be a little bit more conservative than they, you know, expected otherwise. And I would say with that, take that frustration and try to create change, especially at the, the local level. When we think about the Tea Party strategy for making their way essentially to the White House, because Trump is definitely, you know, on the Tea Party spectrum, they started at the ground 
started at these local levels, these local elections, you know, they've now taken governorships or, you know, state legislatures and, you know, eventually the White House. So I think it is a matter of don't think about voting and elections as these big things. It's just the midterms, you know, it's just the national election. You know, think about it from like the smallest unit in your community all the way up And don't wait into these major elections to think about creating change. You know, we can get these people out of office if they are not responding to our needs. If we start early enough, do you have a candidate? Are you a candidate? And so I just kind of want to think about things from that perspective and know that we don't have to maintain the status quo for better or worse. The Tea Party, they shook up the Republican Party because they were not happy with what they saw as compromising elected officials. And for those of us on the more liberal or radical, you know, spectrum, we can do the same if we are very strategic and realize that this is a long term plan. It's not going to happen with one election. It's not going to happen overnight. But we have to vote now in order to prevent major damage from being done that would prevent us from even being able to realize bigger, bigger changes. So, yeah, I think um, I covered uh, immigration in my class today. And, you know, one of the things I was telling them is people think even things like parties like the Tea Party, et cetera, or, you know, people that are anti-immigration. When we look at the stats, they are a minority of what people believe. Um, because what we've seen is that most Americans, majority of Americans, I think it was like 65% from this Pew Research study that we looked at, are, favor, are in favor of immigration, view it positively, et cetera. But when we, and only 27% are the ones that are anti-immigration, right? So almost only a quarter of Americans are against immigration. My majority of Americans are, but why is it when we see these things happen, these policies put in place, these po- politicians pushing for anti-immigration stances, and it's turned into a debate, but really should it be a debate in a, in a democratic society, majority rules. And if we're talking almost 70% of Americans are okay with immigration, it shouldn't even be a debate. But the problem is, is that that, that 30%, they're being way more active in the political process, way more informed, way more strategic as far as getting what they want to be said, heard and enacted in law. And everybody else is a little bit more lackadaisical. And so I think, I do believe that most people are just good people and, and majority of people do and want to do the good things and want justice and want equality. But now we just all have to kind of come together and be active in that pursuit in order to make it happen. Um, and I think that's important in a lot of ways. And, and even when we talked about the black women thing, I think that was important, especially with the 2016 election, because I think it was something like 97 percent, something really high like that. I'm pretty sure that's pretty close of black women, you know, voted for Hillary. Why I think what was it almost half if that voted for Hillary for white women? And I'm like, what in the world is this? You know, it's kind of crazy how that that big gap is there um, as far as voting for what's right. But then you see all the uproar and everybody's upset now about, you know, what Trump is doing and how he's acting in office. And then, you know, the Me Too movement. Uh, but so I'm like, yo, every time I see, you know, it, white folk. I'm, and I'm in a room, it's like 10 white folk. And I know that, you know, 60% of white folk uh, voted for Trump. I'm sitting there like, okay, I know six out of 10 of y'all out here lying to me, but right now y'all trying to be, you know, y'all trying to be cool and act like everything's cool. <laughs> you know, so don't, don't sit here and complain too much because majority of y'all went the other way. And I think that's just funny. Like the numbers don't lie when you see it, but in person, people are less likely to admit what's been going on. But most minorities voted against Trump, which I think was the correct decision at that time and forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny that you said that because after the election, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm addicted to reading comments online. It's a very unhealthy practice, but I do it anyway. It's like watching a train wreck. You just, you got to look even though you shouldn't. (laughs) And there were so many people who admitted anonymously that they had voted for Trump, but they didn't feel comfortable letting other people know. But if you got to hide your decision, that should tell you something if you feel low key ashamed. Uh, But on top of that, you make a really great point. 
we are in the majority. You know, although Hillary was a very problematic candidate, she won the popular vote. We are in the majority. It's just about being strategic about how we get those votes out there. And so that is why people should not lose hope. But again, we got to be we got to be strategic. Yeah, Um, look at the, you know, black 90, it was 94% of black women that voted for for Hillary and 82% black men. And then it was 52% white women that voted for Trump and 62% white men that also voted for Trump. You know, I think the funniest part of like the election season was when I think a black woman on Twitter made like a hashtag that was like, girl, I guess I'm with her or something like that. Because it's not that people, I don't think black women were like especially excited about Hillary Clinton. But I think, and you know, not to, because black men, they overwhelmingly voted for uh Clinton as well. Um, And I don't think it's because because I think I've heard many people have conversations about like, you know, oh, they're the same. You know, I still couldn't vote for her. You know, you like her or whatever. Sometimes people see a bigger picture and they're like, I have to do this. And I I know people hate the lesser of of two evils uh, comment or sentiment. But for me, Man, when I voted, I was thinking about my unborn children, considering the fact that people who will be appointed to the Supreme Court under Trump will likely still be sitting there when my children are going off to school. And just thinking about how there are people that are strategically working to try to bring cases to the Supreme Court. Like there are people who literally pay to find people who will challenge special laws like the Voting Rights Act or, you know, challenge things like affirmative action or challenge things like Roe v. Wade. So knowing that there are people with billions of dollars looking for someone to fight against my rights and knowing that we have someone who in office that can appoint up to like three Supreme conservative Supreme Court justice who will vote not based on the law, but based on their own ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was too risky for me. And I can't tell you how to vote. Just like Ty said, it's not about telling you how to vote. But for me, it's kind of like if you are done with this two party system, I just want you to do more than complain about it. Help us find solutions. Help us find candidates that you and other people would be comfortable with voting Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. yeah, I agree, and that's what, that was exactly what I was about to say when you're talking about you sorry, what you were you about to say about um, just what's at stake, and I feel like this is why most of the time people of color we weren't you know I, people were not happy voting for Hillary. It wasn't like you know she was the greatest thing ever. I don't think it was the same sentiments people felt when they voted for Barack. I think there was nothing near that. But when I was looking at it, I was thinking the same things like. What will happen? What can happen if Trump gets in in office? What can happen to me, people I care about, people of color? And like you said, what will be things that set in place that will affect my children that are not here yet? Um, And I think, you know, a part of just having white privilege is the fact that you really don't have to be concerned with things like that. You can overlook it and you know, you have the you have the privilege of waiting and seeing how things go for the next four years without living in an immense amount of fear of what can happen, because this is just how this country has been set up. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's really crucial and really important. I'm glad you I'm glad you highlighted that, man, because that's. And I was about to say that's true, T. I have um, quite a few, I feel, very liberal or radical uh, white friends who were pretty much Bernie or bust. And throughout the entire process, I was like, that is a freaking privilege to be able to say if my Democratic or more liberal candidate doesn't win, I can afford to sit out or I can afford to vote for a third party candidate because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. yeah, like especially if you are a man and you don't have to worry about Roe v. Wade or you mm-hmm. are a white person who doesn't have to worry about, you know, issues related to affirmative action or Voting Rights Act or housing discrimination. So I, I want to ask my liberal uh, friends who may not 
have may not come into the voting or political space with a marginalized identity to kind of think about the impact of their choices for the people that they call friends, the people that they say they care about, who may be impacted by a throwaway vote or a decision not to vote at all. Mm-hmm. That's the true aspect of any kind of like group teamwork, right? Like if you're playing basketball, you're not going to sit out, right? Because you you can't hit your shots or you're not playing the team you want to play. No, you you got your other teammates out there and you want all to win together. So you got to work together and you just can't, you know, say it's all about me. And if I don't get what I want, then everybody else can bite the dust. You would be considered a terrible teammate and I wouldn't want to play with you if that was the case. And I think that's the thing with, like you said, with these, with these elections, when you could say Bernie or bust and you're not, if you call yourself an ally of, you know, many marginalized populations and you say Bernie or bust, and then you didn't use your vote to make sure that you are putting your marginalized comrades in the best position to, you know, not be oppressed as much and not have as many issues then you you became a part of the problem. You know, you became a part of, you became an oppressor in some sense because you're not using your privilege and your power to help make things right or just or at least better for those of us who are trying. So that's a good, very good perspective. I like that. I like it. Amen. Amen. So. At the church. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. So I guess we're done preaching to y'all, but we will definitely be revisiting this topic again when it gets closer to midterms to remind you all the importance of it, because we all got to vote. Uh, definitely take some take some of that power back. And so we can make things happen to put us in a better position to get the candidates we want in uh, the next presidential election. For sure. And, and, you know, I think when, at least from the Democratic side, it's looking like it's going to be pretty competitive. You know, who, we don't know who's going to be front runner. I think that's the way it should be to see who speaks to the people mm-hmm. most. It shouldn't be like, like we had before. Okay. It was Bernie, it was Hillary, but I think it's better when you have a good solid, like really a four or five people that people just really like. And I think there's a lot of, young people emerging. We talk about people like Cory Booker, et cetera, and others um, who are not the only ones. And then I know Governor Cuomo is trying to make his his take in it too in New York and doing a lot of things right now to prepare for that bid. Uh, but there's going to be a bunch of folk. So I think that's a good thing because mm-hmm. that means we can really narrow it down who's the best fit for, for us. And hopefully the Democratic Party learned their lesson about putting their support behind any one candidate before their electorate has decided Mm -hmm. who they want. So, you know, hopefully that'll make people a little bit, you know, they'll learn their lesson and it'll make people a little bit more excited to get out and vote. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. All righty. Well, as usual, continue to follow us on our social media at BHD Podcast. Email us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up, go on our website, blackandhollydangerous.com. Follow us, leave comments, et cetera. Share us, share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. Um, And also (laughs) hit us up if there's any more comments or topics that you would like us to cover so we can make sure we try to do our best to cover cover them. We got, you know, the summer coming up so we can hit up, get a lot of topics too coming up this summer. Anything, you know, we can really spend some good time researching and getting some stuff out there. Even if we can't find anybody, you know, Daphne and I are ready to to take up the reins and, and give you guys some information as well. I agree. Well, Lynette, Lynette, thanks for joining us once again and see you next week and continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. Yes. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.